the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How about we start off with a poem? Ahem. On the shore, dimly seen through the mists of the deep, where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes, what is that which the breeze or the towering steep, as it fitfully blows, half conceals, half discloses? Now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam, in full glory reflected, now shines in the stream. You know what this uh, song is? Poem? Yet? Well, you will in a minute. Tis the star-spangled banner, O long may it wave, o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. O thus it be, O thus be it ever, when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Believe it or not, that is our national anthem. It's the second and last stanza of the star-spangled banner. And the reason I read it is that today, in case you didn't know, is the 209th anniversary of the bombardment of Fort McHenry, and it was during that bombardment that Francis Scott Key wrote the poem that would become our national anthem. I think it's a great story and a great song. And in our second half hour, I'm going to replay an interview I did a few years ago with a guy who knows all about Francis Scott Key and has all the reasons for keeping the song as our national anthem, despite all the calls from idiot liberals who would like to see it changed to America the Beautiful or Kumbaya or something else. Anyway, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the kiss seen around the world and the stupidity that ensued around the world after it and may still be going on as far as I know, and it involves soccer. Stick around. Well, the only sport I like less than soccer is women's soccer, and if you would ask me this morning who won the Women's World Cup a month or so ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. But Heather MacDonald, the uh, Thomas Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of uh, When Race Trumps Merit, jarred my memory with a piece she wrote. I, I saw it this morning, and Heather joins us now. Heather, thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. So uh, the headline, uh, Mike, Mike's the guy who called you. John, I'm John, but that's, that's okay. Oh, John, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I, I know. was you... uh, looking at an envelope that said Mike. So oh, well, and Mike just problem. called you. That's how it works. Anyway. Okay. Uh, That's okay. The headline is, A Kiss is Just a Kiss, but um, the kiss you wrote about became much more than a kiss. Who planted it on whom, and why did it become such a big deal? The head of the Spanish Federation of Soccer, which is the national soccer organization, was part of an absolutely ecstatic celebration on the field in Australia after the Spain women's, Spanish women's team won the 
female World Cup in soccer against Britain. This was the first World Cup win of the Spanish female team. And everybody in, in, on the Spanish side was in a state of delirium. The, the players were uh, walking down a reception line of dignitaries and coaches and politicians. And one of the players grabbed the head of the Spanish Soccer Federation, Luis Rubiales, by the waist, lifted him up. Uh, he was shouting and, and laughing and, 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 and crying, as was she. So she picked him up in this bear hug, mutual embrace. They continue embracing. He gives her a quick peck on the cheek and then a very, very instantaneous peck on the lips. Uh, this was noticed initially by some people back in the in the locker room. She she films. Uh, her name is Jennifer Hermoso. She films a live Instagram photo of herself celebrating. This is a extremely uh, self assured, crude, callous, tattooed athlete. She's swigging champagne from a uh, champagne bottle and stuffing a chocolate cupcake in her mouth, laughing herself. Somebody off camera asked her, so what did you think of the kiss? Uh, she said just in laughing, oh, I didn't like it. Um, then this nevertheless gets pumped up into a fury, a feminist fury, saying that Rubiales had sexually assaulted Hermoso with this instantaneous kiss that was given in the heat of of celebration and joy, and the feminists start plugging at this. Hermoso, the female soccer player, then issues a statement saying, "This was a mutual gesture of affection." The the co uh, Rubiales is ten out of ten. This was spontaneous gesture of joy. Get over it. She issues a second statement saying, let's keep the attention on the celebration. This is no big deal. Then she discovered, after the feminists were still in full cry and the Spanish government, which is completely left-wing and dominated by feminists, start issuing all of these statements about misogyny and macho Spanish culture, and if, and if Rubiales was willing to kiss her on the lips in front of millions of watchers, well, look what men must do in in uh, in private. Well, of course, the very fact that this was done in front of so-called millions of watchers completely under us, uh, under you know, minds the claim that this was some sort of threatening sexual assault that caused her trauma. Nevertheless, Hermosa completely changed her tune. She issues a statement saying, "Upon further reflection." I realized that this was an incredibly traumatic moment, that I felt vulnerable and I was disrespected, and in no way was this a consensual activity, and oh my God, I'm such a victim. Uh, and so now, Rubiales was an absolute hero. He stood up and stood up against what was a completely international vendetta against him, the entire international media, the, the New York Times was running daily articles about the sexual rape that we all saw on camera. He refused to resign, even though there were calls for him to resign. Finally, on this last Sunday, during a awful 90-minute tangentious Piers Morgan interview of him when Morgan was grandstanding about 
uh, how traumatic this must have been to Hermoso and how Rubiales had, had stolen the glory from the Spanish women's team. No, it was the press who stole the glory by pumping this up. He resigned. Rubiales is now facing a criminal prosecution. Hermoso brought a criminal complaint against him for sexual assault. Uh, he will probably be convicted and face four years in prison. That's beyond belief. It, it's just, for what took you about about two or three minutes to describe that, it went from a celebration to this guy, the, the, first of all, the woman uh, embracing him first and lifting his feet off the ground, and then the kiss. And uh, you write in your piece um, that the possibility of a human future that still has a place for exuberance and common sense has taken a body blow. Um, anybody who, how can anybody not see that? Just the scene that you described: a woman comes out and she and everybody's celebrating. They they see each other. They have some kind of a relationship because of you know their role in the game and the sport and all that. And and the guy obviously decided a peck uh, on the cheek is not enough to show how happy I am. So I'm going to plant a kiss on your face, on your lips. And somebody turns that into sexual. It's, it's stupid beyond belief. How does it get to that point? Because feminists are in a war against a civilization deemed too male. It is a oh, brittle, yeah. vindictive ideology that is destroying spontaneity, exuberance, context, forgiveness. I mean... You know, this was not sexual, and, and in the in the Piers Morgan 90-minute just hatchet job on him, he kept stressing it was a mistake, but it was not sexual. It was a mistake. As as president of the Federation, I should have done it. I, I would even disagree with that, but okay, maybe it was a mistake, but it was not sexual. Uh, the, the feminist will not allow flexibility, even if she felt, oh, this was inappropriate, Get over it. It's not the end of oh. the world. You do not try to destroy a man's career who built the soccer team up from nothing and brought them to this, for Spain, you know, an extraordinarily important victory. You know, I'm not a soccer watcher either, uh, but obviously it is obsession for, oh, yeah. for Europeans. There, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and now they've taken him down. And, and this is a man of courage and integrity, which was quite obvious from this 90-minute interview. But the feminists are, are moving us into a world of, of hatred, brittleness, fragility, fake fragility. I mean, if, if a woman is so devastated by an instantaneous kiss on the lips, how are we supposed to think that women are supposed to serve in military combat units? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. either they're fragile and vulnerable or they're strong. They can't be both together. Well, speaking of the military, everybody's seen uh, that sailor in the famous picture planting a gigantic kiss on her. She, he bends her over and lays a big kiss on her lips uh, in Times Square at the announcement of the end of World War II. Uh, today, he'd be charged with sexual assault, Right. Absolutely. And I, you know, I was thinking about that instance when I was writing this piece, but just decided I didn't have space for it. But yeah. in fact, you know, that kiss, uh, my, my react- recollection was everybody thought it was just a, a charming moment. In fact, in, in subsequent decades, the, the feminists went after that as well. There was a statue of, of the kiss in Sarasota, Florida, for some reason, and that had red paint spread on it. Oh. So, yes, he would definitely be charged with, with uh, sexual assault today. So I, I, why would, couldn't uh, Rubiales accuse the woman 
he kissed uh, Jennifer Hermoso of sexual assault for hugging him and lifting him off his feet. He could exactly. have waited. He that, could have waited till an hour after the game and said, "You know what? I was thinking about that. I feel I feel violated by what she did to me." Absolutely right. No consent. Absolutely right. But of course, we know uh, everything is stacked now against men. So he would have gotten no traction for that. We're talking to uh, Heather MacDonald, a Thomas Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's also author of a book uh, she's been here to talk about uh, called When Race Trumps Merit uh, that you should check out. Um, so uh, so as, as you described, Hermoso, the woman who was kissed, she just caved to the feminist and decided that she had to say it was traumatic for her because her life would have been made miserable if she hadn't, correct? Well, I'm not going to give her that much credit okay. at all. I think she's she's seeing that this is where, uh, you know, glory lies. Oh. This is where future publicity lies. I I think uh, I think she's just decided to be uh, exploitive. I don't I don't feel any sympathy for her. She could have held out against this, but you know, there's there's no advantage in in common sense anymore. Common sense is absolutely over. Yeah, and um, it's it's really sad, and and you know, women um, are kind of late coming to the whole sports thing. Uh, sports were invented, if invented is the right word, by men for men, and that would include the sport of football over there. They call it soccer here, and I don't know. There's certain uh, things that that are treated differently within the context of a sporting event if after you've won or after you've lost because emotions run so high that right. that men figured it out over the few hundred years that they've been playing sports women have been playing sports at that level for about 20 minutes so they're they're they're, they're just now figuring it out um and they they aren't doing themselves any favor by, as you said, showing themselves to be so fragile that the, 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 the reaction would be, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you shouldn't take part in this. Maybe you're not tough enough. Well, that is not the reaction. I mean, she is the unanimity in the international media. Even right-wing outlets like the Daily Mail said this was like the greatest shame or scandal or, or you know, low point in Spanish sports history. Uh, you know, they were all calling it forcible kiss. It was not forcible. It was part of a very instantaneous set of, of fluid gestures. But uh, the complete unanimity in the, in the Spanish government, even from opposition parties, the only one that the last I read of was Vox that had not taken a stand against Rubiales, and that's the, the most conservative party in Spain, um, so I don't think anybody feels at all that this throws doubt on on females in sports. Uh, you know, again, there's just this is this is he is he is a complete scapegoat. He is a complete pariah. There's I don't know of any other person besides myself that has written against this insanity. It's it's a complete collective hysteria, but. It is without any dissent. It's crazy. Now, here's the thing, uh, Heather. I, I I think I may have found a, a couple of reasons for why this is happening. It's in your piece that you wrote uh, at the Manhattan Institute. Um, there are some fish, officials that you mention in the story who have uh, hold titles uh, such as 
Minister of Gender Equality and Social Rights Minister. If that's not enough to just get you running as quickly as you can for the border of Spain to get out of there, I don't know what is. Well, you know, Spain is now one of the most left-wing places in Europe. Madrid has a conservative mayor, but it is just the government is filled with feminists. And, you know, this Piers Morgan, I did a panel this morning that was three to one, three left-wing feminists against me. Um, and, the you know, one of the assumptions was, well, this is all because of inadequate representation. There's not enough females in the sports boards, the governing boards and whatnot, and, and governments. Europe is already going down the path of explicit mandated quotas in political representation, uh, and, and we're probably going to get more of that. But, yeah, basically... Uh, Females in government are guilty unless proven innocent, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's some, some decent ones. Obviously, Margaret Thatcher was great. Golda Meir, uh, mm-hmm. Georgia Maloney in, in Italy is, is on balance, a force for good, although I disagree with her on Ukraine. Uh, but basically, females are responsible for moving politics left. They are not good at rational thinking, at cost-benefit analysis, at of risk analysis, of understanding the market. And, uh, and you know, when Germany has all four of their top leaders, especially in the military, females, this is not a good sign. No, and I, uh, just finishing up here, uh, again, these, uh, some of the, uh, you heard the terms um, um, toxic machismo, I guess it would be over there, instead of toxic masculinity. But sports in and of themselves are a result of what people now look look to as um, toxic masculinity. Football is a bunch of people beating each other up over a stupid ball. Women were too smart to do that, you know, 200 <laughs> years ago. But you know, so if you want to, the, the whole idea that you want, that you want to join something that is only a result of very masculine feelings and, and attitudes, and you want to, you want to, you want to jump in there and you want to change it. You don't want to, you don't, you're going to wait until you're offended by this toxic masculinity, which, if it were not for that, the sport wouldn't exist. Right. Yeah, I know. And it, Well, I mean, I'm not against women's sports. I'm not either. Uh, but I think what's really crazy is women in the military. I mean, that's what they're trying to change. Yeah. Or, or, or females in uh, firefighting or policing. That, that, that worries me. Um, I don't. You know, women can play sports. They're obviously very competent physically. No they question. don't. They don't even compare on terms of of strength. Uh, but so we'll see. You know, if the feminist crusade is able to get females on on American football teams, and um, I think you know, up to now, Americans have been willing to say, well, we'll sacrifice our military readiness to feminist demands, but football, we understand, unlike war, is important, but I'm not sure that, that, that even that will last. Yeah, well, it'll be the end of it. when, it, when if, if they start caving to that degree, then it'll be the end of sports. Hey, uh, Heather, I, I really appreciate you, as always, being on the show. Uh, the book is When Race Trumps Merit. Everybody should check that out and hope to have you on again. Thanks, John. Okay, and we'll be right back.
Now, 209 years ago, something happened that you're reminded of every time you go to a baseball game. And no, it's not the last time the Pirates won a World Series. It was uh, the British bombarded Fort McHenry. And a guy named Francis Scott Key watched it, and he wrote a poem called The Star-Spangled Banner. He'd probably be surprised to see that it's actually become controversial now. I thought of this interview when I saw that this was the anniversary of it. I thought of this interview I had done back in July of 2020 from home, by the way, during the pandemic when stadiums were empty. And I thought it would be worth hearing again. Here it is. There are people out there who want to change the anthem because it was written by a slaveholder. It has scary words in it and a few other reasons. Joshua Lawson is the managing editor of The Federalist. He wrote a piece about it today and he joins us now. Thanks for being here, Joshua. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, everybody is, uh, not everybody, but too many people these days are trying to cancel, uh, uh, delegitimize, vilify everything that happened uh, more than 20 minutes ago in in America. So the Star-Spangled Banner is is one of those things, Um, and you wrote a piece in The Federalist about it today. Uh, Some of the things you talked about there, like uh, it's being criticized because it has a British melody. Why is that a problem? Uh, it's it's not a problem. It's actually quite delightful if you if you look into it. So, so the the melody of the Star Spangled Banner uh, comes from John Stafford Smith's um, "An Ancron to Heaven," or sometimes it's called "An Acreon to Heaven," um, and it's a British drinking song that would be sung at pubs back in the day. And so, if you think about it, it's actually incredibly subversive in the best way possible, right? You've taken this British song that belongs to a nation that we defeated in a war for independence, and then we're using it as a melody for a subsequent victory in the War of 1812. It's, it's thumbing their nose in, in the best way possible. So that's not a drawback. That's actually a feature of the anthem. Uh, you don't cover this in your piece, but I was just thinking about it as you're saying this. Um, he, wrote, he wrote this as a poem, correct? And then it became, and then people sang it to the tune of a British melody. Uh, yeah, Francis point Scott, it, he wrote it as a poem, yeah. But at what point did it become a song? I mean, at what point, put it this way, were people singing it in, in, the, in, in the United States? Um, you've got sheet music for it being published in the late 1800s. Um, it wasn't officially the U.S. national anthem, though, until it was signed into law in 1931, an act of Congress, and then uh, Hoover signed it. Um, There's debate even then about, um, you know, should this be the anthem? But back then it was mostly about the musical nature of the piece. It's got a large range of an octave and a fifth. So you got to have some vocal chops to sing it right, or you just start at an appropriate note. Um, But now, of course, the the criticisms of the anthem are are right in line with the New York Times 1619 project, which is it's too favorable to America. It's too happy. It's too patriotic. And so they're trying to cancel it for all those reasons. I, I guess there are people out there who think that you should have a national anthem, uh, and the the actual definition of what an anthem is, uh, you know, it's it's an anthem. It's it's a it's a profession of of uh, love, um, and but people think that their song should be something where you're um, admitting to all your sins. That should be your anthem. I, I mean, it, it, it makes no sense. No sense at all. No sense at all. No. Um, Look, America's history, like every nation, is complicated, but um, the role of an anthem is to 
is to lift our spirits and to remind us of everything that is good in our country. Dwelling on the past and dwelling on every misstep and every error gets us nowhere. It only uh, adds to our strife and our division. So if there's, you know, one moment for a minute and 20 seconds when we can come together and speak about the resilience of this country, you know, that's what the anthem's for. And, and that's, what's, that's what's so great about the Star Spangled Banner. Originally, it was written to commemorate this victory back in 1814 um, during the Battle of Baltimore, where Fort McHenry, you know, withstood this massive British bombardment. But now, you know, the, the lyrics really go beyond what Francis Scott Key originally composed. Now, now that flag and that song is the flag that, that those firemen planted at Ground Zero um, after 9-11, it's, it's um, you know, we just had the anniversary of the moon landing. It's, it's Buzz Aldrin saluting the stars and stripes in the sea of tranquility. You know, this, this song, now these lyrics are way beyond what Francis Scott Key composed in a good way. And every time we sing this song and hear someone really knock it out of the park, it reminds us of this American resilience that, you know, we still stand. Uh, we're not going anywhere, and this country's not going anywhere, and we've got to fight to keep it. Uh, but... But Joshua, he was a slaveholder, the guy who wrote the song, Francis Scott yes. Key. We can't yes. be singing a song. Yes, he was. <laughs> um, it's undeniable. Francis Scott Key was a slaveholder, um, as were many of the, the founding fathers and people who lived in that day. But it's, it's treacherous if we're to view them all with a 2020 lens. Um, it's, it's complicated, and it needs to be viewed in the context of its time. Uh, one thing that is always left out of this narrative of Francis Scott Key being this horrifically awful person is that he had a, you know, this change of heart near the end of his life. He freed at least six of his former slaves. He started representing them. He was a lawyer. He started representing um, freed slaves and um, those that were still in bondage pro bono for free. Um, he, he joined um, a number of abolitionist groups to try to help secure a free African nation for former uh, black Americans that were now freed. So if anything, we, we should be celebrating that Francis Scott Key um, near the end of his life started to moderate his position and he turned around. We want people to, to make amends and to, um, you know, come to some conciliatory positions instead of dwelling on the faults that they used to have. Yeah. And, and you know, <clears throat> uh, if you think back to, to what, world he was born into and the world he lived in for all all those years exactly uh, yep. switching to uh, becoming an abolitionist would, is almost as drastic a change now as with someone who d would decide you know i think slavery is, is an okay idea i mean it's just it yes. was a total reversal of what he grew up believing from the minute he was born yes that slavery exactly. was a good was not there was nothing wrong with slavery mm-hmm you're right and and um, I, I, the, but the word slave is used in the song too, and it's criticized for that. Yeah, this is also this is this is brought up by a number of the a number of the pieces that have been published uh, recently criticizing the anthem. Um, you know, you had one from the editor in chief of Yahoo Music. You had one in the L.A. Times, written by uh, Jody Rosen, who's a writer for New York Times Magazine, and they bring up this this seldom sung third verse that was written as part of the poem that Francis Gaki composed. And yes, there's the word slave there, but he wasn't referring to, to black Americans in bondage. He was referring to any British soldier that was in service to the crown. Cause in his eyes, they were all lackeys. They were all enslaved by, you know, this 
royal oppression. So that's that's totally twisting that right out of the context. And, and Francis Kaki himself would have been shocked to hear that that's what he meant. Yeah, and, and context is kind of the thing that you're supposed to uh, keep in mind, isn't it? When you're when you're trashing something from 200 years ago. Uh, yeah, always. And we've, we've really lost that um, in terms of all of the historical discussions that have been going on for the last, uh, it seems, month and a half now, um, is, is viewing everything in its proper context and the history that um, it was born into. And, uh, and then, yeah, learning from it and uh, evolving. But context is everything in history. Yeah, and and the uh, if you could uh, elaborate a little bit more on on the the use of the word slave because that that's the one that uh, people seem to uh, really want to hang their hat on when it comes to saying it's a um, uh, you know wanting to wanting to get rid of the song is that uh, it, it's a it's a um, it, it's a glorification of but it's a, a dismissal of slavery whatever whatever they thought he was doing with that word. Yeah. Um... I am forgetting the the name of the of the author, but there's there's a book that um, your readers can can Google it. I'm sure, and your listeners, um, of the the man who who wrote the definitive volume on the whole history of the Star Spangled Banner. He goes into this in particular. He had an article uh, not too long ago in the Star Tribune explaining that he, when he uses the word slave, is not talking about slaves in the south or slaves that are uh, black americans that are that are in you know imprisoned in bondage in the united states he's using it as an insult like the whole song is really um as i said earlier it's really thumbing thumbing its nose at the british at this you know wonderful royal navy that could not take down fort McHenry, and so it's it's used as an insult to these british soldiers because at the time of course Americans are, are free um, in uh, the early 19th century there, and they're looking at these folks that they're having to fight yet again um, and, and saying, you're the slaves. Um, you're the slaves because you are uh, completely controlled by this, this, this monarch uh, ruling out of London, and, and you don't have the freedom we have. And so it's really poking at their, their lack of freedom as British subjects. You would think that some of the, the the supposedly smart people who are uh, quick to condemn the song and and want to cancel it, you would think that it wouldn't be that hard for them to figure that out. Uh, would it be uh, laziness or willfulness? You know that they they they, they <laughs> jump on that word and and figure well this is I can really get them with this one because if you found it out, uh, then it shouldn't be that hard for. You know the the people at uh, the, the academics and some of the the so-called journalists who are writing about it. It's part of what you do as a journalist is to is to um, you know get all the facts and, and also deal with things in context. Yeah, I mean, five minutes of research they could find that out. I'm, I'm not kidding. Five minutes of research they could find that out. It's uh, it's not hard. So that's because of that, you either have to assume that they're incredibly lazy, which is not out of the realm of possibility, but. I think at this point, when you've seen what's gone on um, since early June, I, I think, unfortunately, it looks more like malice, like it's, it's willful blindness. They don't want to acknowledge this. They go in um, with this kind of air of, oh, you know, if you were to point it out, oh, I didn't know that, or they question the sourcing, even though it's the definitive biography of the song. Um, yeah, at this point, I think 
them falling back on the uh, the ignorance excuses is not an excuse at all. I think you really have to view this as selective editing on their part and um, and twisting things, hoping that readers of these of these articles in the LA Times and the Yahoo Music uh, won't go and do their homework and 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 just they'll just take them at their word because you know they have these traditional platforms that um, used to be afforded so much respect and hoping that people won't notice. Hey, uh, Joshua, I, I saw that you uh, also wrote a piece, and you mentioned before we did when I talked to you earlier that you uh, just recently became an American citizen. You were uh, born in Canada. Um, can you, we only have about a, a minute and a half left. I just what what uh, what led you to become an American, and what that process was like. Uh, the process was, was a long one. It took about uh, twelve years from start to finish, but incredibly worth it. Um, I was naturalized early January of this year, and and after my wedding day, it's the the happiest moment of my life, bar none. Um, I was born in Toronto, and. You know, I, I love Canada. It's a, it's a good place. Um, but around 9-11, actually, I, I started to realize that uh, I was born in the wrong country, <laughs> that uh, all, all of my beliefs and, and everything that I held dear and cherished uh, were really lining up with the founding principles of the United States of America. And that's where I wanted to be. And that's where I wanted to, um, to, to raise a family. And, and now it's to do everything I can to preserve those founding principles. Well, it's it's interesting that um, you are uh, now writing for something called The Federalist, a very American uh, uh, publication and a, a conservative uh, uh, website. And I'm um, um, I'm just wondering what when you were when you were going to school in Toronto, what were you learning about the United States? What are kids in Canada learning about the United States? Maybe that you found either to be not true or to be very true. Uh, we'd need another hour to cover that. Yeah, I figured. I have, I have a little bit more time. I thought I only I got a couple minutes actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's problematic, and uh, what I assume is is being taught in Europe is 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 mostly the same in terms of American history as what is being taught in Canada. It's not that it's one hundred percent negative, but the narrative is is usually that. Um, America is at fault when anything goes wrong in the world, and when anything goes right in the world, that is the uh, the result of American action, whether it be you know curing diseases like smallpox or or you know putting a man on the moon or you know defending the world um, from tyranny in, in world wars. It's usually the credit of everyone else, and America's left out of that narrative. Um, Canadians often have a propensity to define themselves not by what makes them uniquely Canadian, but how they're not American, and it's usually in a very negative tone. So um, that's where there was this huge disconnect where I was um, watching the American news um, during the coverage of the aftermath of 9-11 and then pairing that with what I was getting in my American history electives in Toronto and going, this is, one of these is wrong. One of these interpretations of the United States is wrong. Um, I grew up on, on a lot of the old, you know, classic American um, films of, you know, John Ford and, and John Wayne. And, and so I got the idea of America um, also from speeches of Ronald Reagan, of, of this, this city on a hill, this very optimistic, forward-looking nation that um, is not ever going to be perfect, but it's always 
striving to form that more perfect union, and that's what drew me to the United States. Hey, Joshua, I'm out of time. I really appreciate it, uh, you being here. Welcome to uh, America as a citizen. I am a, uh, I am a, um, uh, a dual citizen. All I have to do is prove it. I haven't done it yet, but my mother was Canadian, so uh, we have some kind of a little kinship there. I, I'm, I'm not officially recognized, but if I want to be, I can. But uh, welcome to America, and thanks for doing the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay, that's Joshua Lawson. He's managing editor of The Federalist. You can check out his piece at thefederalist.com. We'll be right back. Well, Barbara Warwick got what she wanted. In case you didn't know, Barbara is a uh, member of Pittsburgh City Council. She introduced a bill, and it was passed yesterday by uh, an eight-to-nothing vote, unanimous. Uh, she, along with Bobby Wilson and Bruce A. Krause, all Democrats, of course, uh, sponsored this thing. And um, what it does, it's a, uh, it, hap- it happened yesterday. They approved it. It would um, cement access to gender-affirming care in Pittsburgh – it's a uh, it, it, it amends a 2011 ordinance that designated Pittsburgh a human rights city. This is from the Tribune Review that I'm reading this stuff. It says that the amendment will share a shield care providers as well as recipients and their legal guardians from out-of-state investigations or prosecution for receiving gender-affirming care. Uh, they did a saying they had a same kind of deal last year for protecting abortion. Uh, the measures define gender-affirming care as quote the range of social, psychological, behavioral, and medical interventions designed to support and affirm an individual's gender identity when it conflicts with the gender they were assigned at birth. Uh, so what it does, it's, um, it, it's for people from West Virginia, Ohio, um, some other states not too far from here that uh, have passed laws that um, prohibit gender-affirming care for minors. Now they can bring the kiddies here uh, and have them mutilated, if you'd like. So I guess um, the, uh, the goal here, if it really works out the way they hope, um, Pittsburgh could become the child mutilation center of the world. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, just become known for that. How about a nice sign up there on the Parkway West as you're coming down, heading for the tunnel, that says, Welcome to Pittsburgh. We mutilate your kids with no questions asked. Something like that. Or, you know, mutilation, capital of the world. Even if you think about it, you know, steel is not um, really relevant anymore to Pittsburgh. We're not a steel town anymore. So the name Steelers really doesn't fit the city. I mean, when you think about it, does it? So a couple hundred years from now, you could name the team the, uh, the Pittsburgh Mutilators. That sounds good, doesn't it? I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.